If you would please turn in your Bibles to our scripture reading, which is taken from Isaiah chapter 53, specifically verses 10 to 12. Again, our scripture reading is Isaiah 53 verses 10 to 12, and our sermon passage is taken from 1 Samuel chapter 19 verses 1 to 7. 1 Samuel 19 verses 1 to 7. Brothers and sisters, as Scripture is about to be read to you now, I remind you that this is not like any other words on a piece of paper. That the words that you are about to hear read are the words of God. This is the Lord speaking to you. Think of, think of it this way. You are having an audience with your King, with the High King of Heaven. And He's speaking to you now. Please give your full attention to God's word as it is read. Isaiah 53, verses 10 to 12. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide with him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. Now turning, if you will, to 1 Samuel chapter 19, verses 1 to 7. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants, that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul and he was in his presence as before. This ends the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Our gracious God, as your word has just been read to us and it is now about to be preached unto us, we ask for your blessing upon it. We pray, O Lord, that we would worship you as the word is preached and that the preached word would cause us to worship you, that it would spur us on to worship you, that it would give us more and more reasons why we ought to worship you. Please teach us from your word today, we pray. Please give us 
understanding by Your Spirit. Cause our minds to be illumined. We pray that You would lead us on those right paths, O Lord. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now in the previous passage that we considered a few weeks ago, the last section in 1 Samuel chapter 18, we saw how God protected David from the snares that Saul had set for him. And you'll remember that Saul's schemes included using his daughters, both of them, as a form of bait to get David to do whatever Saul asked him to do. And this included sending David into battles in which he hoped David would be killed. Sending him to kill a hundred Philistines and bringing back souvenirs to prove that he had done it. But each time that Saul sent him out with the expectation that he would be killed in battle, killed in fights, David succeeded where Saul thought and hoped he would fail. In fact, David far exceeded the goals that Saul set for him to the astonishment of onlookers everywhere. And so each and every time Saul sent David out, David came back victorious and the people lauded his successes, which further infuriated King Saul. You know, it truly was the case that God was with David, as Saul admitted there at the end of chapter 18. After witnessing what David accomplished in the last part of chapter 18, Saul could not deny it. And it resulted in Saul fearing David even more, and I think we can very safely say, hating him even more. The fear of a thing will cause us either to bow down and worship of that thing, or it will result in us hating it. Resenting it, being jealous of it. and In this case, it was a person. So we might say that God used David directly in causing David to, uh, to evade the snares of death. But our passage this morning shows us that God also uses other means to ensure that his people are kept safe. David was strong, and he was very smart, and he was an incredible war fighter. And so David could have succumbed to the notion that he was just good enough to fight his own battles. He didn't need any help. He could have been a lone ranger in his own mind before a lone ranger such a thing was known of. In this instance this morning, God uses Saul's son Jonathan, who also was David's closest friend, to prevent him, uh, to prevent harm rather, from befalling David. In the next passages, the Lord also uses Michal and Samuel as a means to keep Saul from harming David. And this served as a lesson to David, and it should serve as a lesson to us, that he, that we, cannot save ourselves. Both physically, in David's case in these instances, but also spiritually. David needed outside intervention. He needed someone to intercede for him. He needed a mediator to step in between himself and the person who intended to do him harm. And we do too. I'd ask you to consider this as we work our way through the passage this morning. God provides an intercessor to preserve his people because we can do nothing to save ourselves. Let me say that again. God provides an intercessor to preserve his people because we can do nothing To save ourselves. We've got three points this morning. The first point is titled, The Hiding Place. The second, Divine Intervention. And the third, Saul Solemnly Swears. 
Again, the hiding place, divine intervention, and Saul solemnly swears. And I was tempted to put Saul solemnly swears that he is up to no good, but that was way too long of a point to put in. But really, that's about what Saul was up to, wasn't it? So first, the hiding place. Prior to this, Saul's schemes to get rid of David had been kept private. He had, he had just kept them in the counsel of his own mind. In our passage, he exposes what previously had been hidden, and he lets his servants and his son in on his plans. Now, of course, the Lord was the one person who knew exactly what Saul was plotting. He knew exactly about his schemes, and of course, we saw uh, in uh, the passage at the end of chapter 18 that that the Lord was the one who thwarted Saul's schemes. Saul lets his servants, he lets his son in on his plans, and he does so by enlisting their help. He had been unsuccessful going solo. Now he enlists his servants and Jonathan to kill David. We read in verse 1, And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. Now the first word in verse 1 in Hebrew is not Saul or and as it is in English. It's spoke which is an indication by the author of 1 Samuel that something has changed in the mind of Samuel, as, as, uh, sorry, in the mind of Saul. As one commentator puts it, after a long period of scheming against David in secret, now he speaks of killing David to anyone who will listen. He's talking to everyone. He's plotting against David and he wants to bring others into his plot. He's widening the circle in order to bring more into this plot to kill David. But one of those to whom Saul reveals his plan has no intention of joining him in this plan. The author of 1 Samuel places a strong emphasis on the familial bonds between Saul and Jonathan. In verses 1 to 4, the words son and father are used a total of six times. Son is used two times and father is used four times. You'll notice that after verse 4, those familial terms for one another are no longer used. What is the significance of this to the reader? Why did the, the author of 1 Samuel use that? It's a rhetorical device. He's trying to convey something there, those first four verses. We all know by this time that Saul is Jonathan's father and Jonathan is Saul's son. So it is clear that it's being done deliberately. It's not to refresh our memories on that. I think it's to show what Jonathan had to overcome in order to intervene for David. Probably you all know the proverb, blood is thicker than water. You may not exactly know what that proverb means. It's a little bit murky. But that proverb has been around since the medieval period for a reason. Family ties are stronger than friendship. You see this every day. Jonathan would have been under tremendous pressure from his father to kill David just because of his family ties. And that is what the author is getting at here. That's why he includes it in there, I believe. But for Jonathan, friendship, loyalty, honor, integrity, these were thicker than blood. And so in verse 2, he tells David, he goes and rats his father out. He tells David, Saul, my father, there's, there again, that familial language, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. Now, there are times in life when I'm fairly certain each one of us here has simply gone along to get along, right? We just try to get along. We don't want to cause ripples in our family. We just try to just try to get through. How many times at Thanksgiving or Christmas? Just try to go along to get along. 
Of course, what Saul is asking here is in the extreme, the murder of Israel's greatest champion, and yet causing the death of a political rival is a thing. It happens all of the time throughout history. It's happened all the way back to to Saul and David and even before them, all up until our present day. Right now, one of the main opposition leaders uh, in Russia was recently poisoned and now is in critical condition in Germany. And he's the latest in a string of people who have been poisoned, who have been critical of uh, the president, Vladimir Putin. It still goes on today. The desire to kill a rival goes all the way back to the first pair of offspring in history. All that to say that Jonathan could be expected to do exactly what his father wanted him to do. Jonathan had a great deal to gain. You off the heir apparent... The guy who's coming in from outside and and it's becoming more and more clear that he's the Lord's anointed now. Saul's already been told he's done. You get rid of him, Jonathan's next in line to the throne when his father passes away. Now every family has its own unique dynamic and yet I'm sure that many of us have, have been felt pressured to do something that we didn't want to do. And for some of you, some of that pressure that comes from within your family, it might have even felt uh, unethical or immoral. And yet there are times where we just go along because we don't want to upset the family. But here's Jonathan. Though he would have had the most to gain by David's death, though he felt the weight of his father's expectations for what he should do, Jonathan commits to interceding for David. Jonathan continues to tell David his plan in verse 3. He says, I will go and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you, and if I learn anything, I'll tell you. That's a a very concise way of saying what Jonathan is about to do. He's putting himself at risk. If his father's crazy enough to kill David, who, who sometime in recent history, recent past, had succeeded in defeating the greatest single enemy against Israel, If Saul would kill David, what's to stop him from killing his own son? This brings us to our next section of the sermon, Divine Intervention. And we need to take note here for just a moment that there is, over the course of chapter 18, there is a movement away from actual communication between Saul and David. You see at the beginning of the the chapter, even going back to chapter 17, Saul, Saul and David were talking to one another. It's a little bit strained. It's, it's, it, there's some unusual things that take place between Saul and David after, after David kills Goliath. But they're talking to one another at the beginning of chapter 18. But by the middle of chapter 18, Saul and David begin to speak to one another only through Saul's servants. And so, for instance, in verse 22 we read, of chapter 18, we read, And Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David in private, and say, Behold, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now, then, become the king's son-in-law. Saul tells the servants exactly what they're to say, but Saul does not speak to David in person again in chapter 18. And that continues on into, into chapter 19. And regarding this, this, this break or breach in the communication, one commentator writes, Where hate is gnawing and burrowing, communication becomes problematic and difficult. Saul and David are already past the point where they can establish contact themselves. But at this stage, Jonathan is still there as the mediator, and his action is successful. Communication has utterly broken down between Saul and David. And it's not David's fault. David doesn't hate Saul. Saul hates David. 
And that hatred is further enraged, enlarged because of the lack of communication between these two. Now, some of you film buffs, you, you may remember, you may have watched uh, the movie Citizen Kane. Some of you I know, it's an old movie, came out in 1941, 42. You're not about to watch it. But, but some of you who have, there's this scene where, where uh, 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 Orson Welles, he plays uh, Charles Kane, uh, and, he's, and he's, he marries this woman, Emily, and he's, and he's coming into his, his fortune as a magazine magnate, a publishing magnate, uh, and they're married. And at first it starts out in a sort of a, a quick montage of events that happen between these two, this married couple. And it's quickly done, and, and the, the director is showing that over the course of time, these two, uh, m- this married couple, are, are becoming increasingly distant from one another. And he does it visually. At first, they're sitting together at their dinner table, and it's close, and they're beside each other, and they're having a conversation with one another, and then you jump cut to a period of years uh, in the, into the future, and they're a little more distant. And by the end of uh, their marriage, right before their marriage falls apart and, and, and Charles Foster begins an affair with another woman, they're at this huge table, and in the middle between them, they're at either end of this gigantic table, in the middle between them, they have this huge bouquet of flowers that prevents them from even seeing each other. That's an illustration of, of how, how hatred brings about a breakdown in communication and breakdown in communication further exacerbates and complicates and enlarges hatred. Jonathan is coming into this. He's stepping into this breach of communication. He's mediating. He's interceding. He's closing the distance between Saul and and David. And verse 4 says, And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. Now here is a man who does not seem to know what the fear of man is. Yes, Jonathan is Saul's son. And, and you would hope that he would enjoy a, a, a degree of protection uh, from his father or by his father as king. But Jonathan also knows that his father has, has turned into a bit of a madman. He may not know the full extent of that at this point, but he knows that Saul is beginning to come unhinged. He may know. He probably he knows that Saul wants to kill David. Saul said as much. He probably already knew that Saul had tried to kill David by hurling the spear at David. He knows all of these things, and yet he willingly comes in Now, Jonathan has ensured that David is in a safe place where Saul can't harm him. He's done that. And some people would probably, well, that's enough. I've done my duty. I've I've gotten David into a hiding place. Saul can't hurt him. But this isn't enough for Jonathan. He takes the next step of going to his father, the king, and he tells him not to commit the sin that he is planning to commit. Jonathan is respectful. He honors the king. Let not the king, he says. But he firmly confronts his father. He pleads with his father not to sin. He tells his father, David hasn't sinned against the the king. And David's deeds have actually been good for the king and for his kingdom. And then Jonathan continues in verse 5. He gives an example. For he took his life in his hand and he struck down the Philistine. And Yahweh worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it. He tells the king, his father, and you rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? 
Jonathan is interposing himself between his father Saul and his friend David. And he is doing so at great personal risk to himself. Now later, of course, Jonathan's loyalty to David will throw Saul into a jealous rage against Jonathan. And then Jonathan will become his target as well as David. But in the short term, Saul heeds the voice of his son. We're going to consider that in a few moments. I think that it's important for us. Jonathan's confrontation with Saul can serve as a very good example for us about how to speak with another person regarding their sin. What did Saul's fear of man end up doing to Saul? It ended up breaking off all communication. I know that my fear of man oftentimes results in me not confronting other people that perhaps need to be confronted. I don't like conflict. There are times when I can see that that is a grave error. Sometimes those chickens come home to roost. If you avoid talking to another person about their sin, especially when their sin is against you. Jonathan, as we noted, he spoke the truth. He did so with firmness. But he also did so with respect and love for his father, the king. He didn't lay into his father. He didn't tell his father that he was an idiot. What are you doing? He did not call on his father with his first words to repent of plotting to murder David. No. He simply told his father, let not the king sin against his servant David. And then he gave the reasons. He listed out this, this, the, the reasons why Saul should not do so. Jonathan intervened. He interceded for David. He willingly became a mediator between the two because he loved them both. And by doing so, Jonathan points forward to, you guessed it, Jesus Christ. He painted for God's Old Testament people a picture of what an intercessor looks like. And he was able to do so by the grace of God alone. Sinful human nature is disinclined to putting itself in harm's way. I mean, how many of us, we just, something's going on, we hear conflict, we put our, we put our heads down and we walk the other direction. We do not want to get involved. It's a personal investment that we are not prepared to make. As we've already noted several times, let me say it again, Jonathan had a great deal of pressure to overcome in order to step between his father and David. But in doing so, Jonathan showed Israel, he showed the church of the Old Testament what a mediator, what an intercessor looked like. And of course he wasn't the first. And he wouldn't be the last to do so in the Old Testament. But his intercession here was intended by God to help his people identify the true intercessor. They needed examples of it. Why? Because by nature, according to our sinful nature, we do not want to intercede. We do not want to intervene. Our sinful nature makes us not want to get involved at all. Jonathan's intercession helped God's people to interpret and understand passages like Isaiah 53, where in speaking of the Messiah, the suffering servant who was yet to come, we read, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jonathan's behavior, his action in this passage, just like Moses' action when he interceded for Israel, just like Abraham's action when he interceded for Sodom and Gomorrah, these actions help us to understand what Isaiah 53 means. They give us concrete examples of what intercession looks like so that, we can, so that we can identify 
the true intercessor. And so Jonathan was, in a real sense, paving the way for Jesus. His actions made it possible for those with eyes to see and ears to hear to identify him when he came. And it also left those who refused to hear, who refused to see, it left them without excuse. And Jonathan helps us to recognize the deep personal cost to the Son of God when he stepped in between sinners and his Father. When he took his Father's just wrath and punishment for our sins upon himself. Whereas Saul was completely unjust in his anger and wrath against David, God the Father is completely just in his wrath against us. We deserve God's wrath because of our sins, but Jesus Christ, the Son of God, intervened. He interceded for us on the cross. He provided the place for us where we could hide from God's wrath. He became for us a shield. He became our hiding place. And even as Jesus was dying on the cross, some of the very last words that he would utter were, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus carried out his duty as intercessor to the very end of his life, and he died for his people to save us from our sins. This takes us to the third and final point of the sermon this morning. Saul solemnly swears. Verse 6 says, And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, As Yahweh lives, he shall not be put to death. Saul is swayed. Saul has decided to stay his hand. And for a time there was indeed a stay in Saul's execution order. He stood down from his hostilities against David. And verse 7 says that Jonathan called David and reported to him all the things that he and his father had said and and his father's oath not to kill David. And David was brought back into the presence of Saul by Jonathan as before. Things were, in a sense, returning back to normal. Now, of course, we know that when this detente between Saul and David does not last, it's going to come to an end. In the very next passage in chapter 19, at an unspecified amount of time later, Saul plots to kill David yet again. And so Saul will prove himself again to be uh, be someone who is unworthy of trust. Saul's oath not to kill David, we will see, meant nothing to him. But God's oath, his vow, God's covenant that he made with us means everything to him and to us. God's covenant to save a people for himself is written in stone. It cannot be changed because God does not change. He is not subject to whims or capriciousness. He doesn't suddenly wake up one morning and say, Oh, all that stuff I said before, never mind. God has made a promise to his people and he will not break it because to do so would be to break his very nature. He is not like mankind. He's certainly not like Saul. He has always fulfilled his promises, and he always will. That's part of the value of the Old Testament for us to read it. We see again and again how God makes promises and how God fulfills those promises. He keeps them every single one. And so those few that, left, that are left, that remain unfulfilled, we can know based on what he has done in the past that he absolutely will do that in the future for us. 
And the reason that God made this covenant, the covenant of grace, with sinners like you and me, is because if anyone is going to be saved from God's wrath against our sin, God has to do the saving. And God's word teaches that, teaches us that again and again. He's got to get it through your and my thick skulls. Now, in this situation in chapter 19, with all of Saul's servants coming after him like bounty hunters, it was clear that David could not save himself. David needed someone. He had to have someone else like Jonathan to step in and save him. David might have had a certain amount of arrogance in the strength of his own right arm. He had been blessed with victory after victory. And it's very easy for us when we begin to find a measure of success in our lives. Certainly most of us have not been in battle. But in our work, in our employments, in, in, in our pursuits, we find success. And it's easy for, for, the, for the best of us, the most conscientious believer in Jesus Christ. It's very easy for us to start thinking, all right, I've got this. I'm doing pretty well. We get a little puffed up. No doubt David was, was no different. And by this intervention of his friend David, by the intervention of McCall, by the, the intervention of Samuel later on in chapter 19, David will learn that he cannot save himself. He cannot do it by himself. And we are no different, you and I. And much of our lives following Jesus is being reminded of that simple fact. You cannot save yourself. I cannot save myself. We can't add one single merit on the scales of cosmic justice in our favor. We've only piled up demerits. But the good news is this, brothers and sisters. That the merit of Jesus Christ on those scales of cosmic justice, it so far outweighs your demerit... If you believe in Jesus Christ, that your sin will never outweigh, your demerits will never outweigh the merits of Jesus Christ. The fact that David needed a mediator shows us that we too need a mediator. We cannot intercede for ourselves or for anyone else. Jesus Christ interceded for David and for us on the cross. He took our sins upon himself. He suffered his father's wrath in our place. And Jesus Christ continues that work of intercession for us now, even now. At his father's right hand, still he intercedes for us. He ever lives above for me to intercede. And brothers and sisters, that is good news. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for our intercessor, Christ Jesus. We do give thanks to you for those Old Testament saints like Jonathan, who, who helped us to see what an intercessor looks like, who pointed forward to the coming of the true intercessor. We thank you that you gave him all of the grace that he needed to do that which was impossible for natural man to do. And we're grateful to you that you give us the same grace so that what we are able to do as believers is far more, 
far better, far more wonderful than what we ever could have done as unbelievers, as unregenerate people. Lord, we are thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ who interceded for us in his life and by his death on the cross and who continues to intercede for us even now. Who interposes himself. We pray, dear Lord, that that with this knowledge in mind, that we would rejoice in you and worship you even more. We pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.